Welcome to Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. My guest today is Heike Hoffman. My name's Heike Hoffman. I'm a professor in statistics at Iowa State University. Her work focuses on statistical graphics and visual inference. And we're going to talk a bit about what those fields are and some of the cool things that you can do with them later in our discussion. But we're actually going to be starting with something that I think is both really cool and totally unexpected for a statistician to be working on. That is criminal forensics, and in particular, the matching of bullets fired from guns. This is the same sort of forensics that you see all the time on TV, crime dramas, CSI. I'll use the example of the X-Files a bit in our discussion. And we're going to talk a bit about what's actually going on and how forensic bullet matching works. We're also going to focus on the science behind the processes that Professor Hoffman and her team use to digitize images of fired bullets and do statistical analyses to do the matching process instead of relying on visual inspection done by humans. Totally fascinating stuff. I love the fact that we are coming at this from a pure mathematical, statistical place to translate that work into what's really tangible and important work in the criminal justice system. I'm going to probably start by sharing a little too much information about my current life, which is that I'm currently rewatching The X-Files. And that that is my uh, workout background show right now. And several times in the show, they will have a bullet and they'll have a gun and they need to go and match it. And they'll take the gun to the lab and fire it into a thing of water and then look at the bullets under a microscope and the lab tech will tell them whether it is a match or isn't a match. And this is a standard television portrayal of a bullet matching. And I want to start by asking, how accurate is that portrayal? And what is it that they're doing when they're going through that process? I love those shows too. CSI and all of, essentially all of the CSIs. The main difference is between television and real life is it doesn't fit in 45 minute episodes. Mm -hmm. And it's also sometimes not quite as clear cut in terms of, yeah, we can say whether these two pieces come from the same source or these two pieces come from different sources. So we're fired from different guns. But the general gist is there are there's some evidence at a crime scene, um, a bullet, cartridge cases. And what firearms examiners do is um, they will collect the evidence and then compare to a firearm that has been confiscated from, from a suspect or other materials that were found at the crime scene to identify how many weapons were used in a particular case. So if there is a weapon, you're right, there will be test fires. And um, there's various different ways of getting to test fires, but the water tank is is a pretty good one. Um, There's also Kevlar tubes. And essentially, there's um, little silk 
yarn that wraps itself around the bullet. And what is it that they're actually looking at when they're comparing bullets? So for bullets, when, when a bullet is fired, it's going through the barrel. And inside the barrel, there's rifling. So traditional rifling consists of grooves that are broached into that barrel to all the firearms examiners um, that are listening. I'm very sorry. I'm a statistician. <laughs> if I get things wrong, please let, let me know. <laughs> um, so there's, there's grooves in the barrel in a slight spiral. So there's a twist. When the bullet's fired, it expands inside the barrel. And it's then propelled forward because the uh, because of the explosion that happens behind that bullet. It's then pushed through the barrel. It, it goes into side, inside those rails, and that means that it follows the rails, which gives the bullet a bit of a twist, and that makes bullets fly straight, mm -hmm. which is one of the massive res revolutions in the 1600s when rifling was invented. And that rifling, when the bullet goes through the barrel, it, it leaves a, a print on the, the actual yes. bullet that's being fired. So as the, as the bullet goes through the barrel, there's little micro imperfections in the wall. And these little micro imperfections leave tiny scratches on the bullet. And because the bullet is kept in place, these micro imperfections are engraved. So it's a scratch. Those micro imperfections are engraved on other bullets as well. The way that this looks like on the bullet is that there's different sections on the bullets. So we distinguish between land engraved areas and groove engraved areas. And the land engraved areas have a chance to be actually individual characteristics for the barrel. So the firearms community is talking about unique engravings on these land engraved areas that are specific to the barrel. So it, it kind of becomes, a, people will use this term, a, a fingerprint that you can use to identify whether two bullets were fired from the same gun. Mm -hmm. Which I guess takes me to uh, more of a statistical question. Fingerprints, they say everyone has unique fingerprints, so they're really unique. I honestly don't know how true that is. DNA uh, is mostly unique, except with twins. But then uh, <laughs> forensic science has all sorts of other things going to blood spatter patterns and phrenology that are perhaps less statistically reliable. How do we know how accurate the bullet striations, the marks left on the bullets, are from a statistical sense in actually matching two bullets to a single gun? That's a really good question. It's unique, like a fingerprint is a little bit, it's a, it's a very strong statement. And, and firearms examiners in court testify that to the exclusion of any other firearm, they identify two pieces of evidence. Um, so they treat the striar as unique fingerprints. Um, so that has come under criticism by NRC, the National Research Council, in 2009, and then later by a PCAST report, the President's Councils of Advisors in Science and Technology in 2016, because the statements that are made about a lot of the pattern evidence in court does not have established 
error rates. So we just don't know what the error rates are. And um, in the absence of error rates, we can't actually say how correct statements are mm -hmm. or with what probability statistically things could go wrong. So in statistics, we're very happy to talk about error rates. We've got multiple types of error rates. Um, so talking about a false positive or a false negative is not something that has a negative connotation. Mm -hmm. um, but when we're in these high stakes scenarios, like somebody is convicted or somebody is not convicted, either one of those decisions going wrong is uh, type one and type two errors suddenly get a completely different meaning. Mm -hmm. When you started working in this area, what was your your sense of how sensitive to error rates the field really is? Or as a statistician, did you start talking to the forensics folks here and say, oh, golly, this is an issue? Or were, were they doing things uh, reasonably well and being scientific in their approach to this field? The field has existed for 150 years. And I'm convinced that a lot of the things that are in firearms examinations are things that go well and that will survive the general audit. But um, some, some things need to be put on more on a more scientific foundation. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that CSAFE was established, so the Center for Statistics and Applications in Forensic Evidence, was to review some of these protocols and some of the techniques and try to put it on a more scientific foundation. And what I've been involved in is algorithmic matching of firearms evidence so that we have a second avenue, a supplement, if you want, a supplement to the firearms examiner um, to review and quantify the strength of the similarity of two pieces of evidence. And that goes both ways. So we want to find similarities between two pieces of evidence. But at the same time, we also want to quantify how dissimilar two pieces of evidence are. Mm -hmm. So this takes us to what I immediately think of as one of the hardest and most fascinating things about your work. I can think intuitively if uh, we're talking about the odds of a poker hand being dealt or something like that, uh, or just coin flips or stuff like that, where you have numbers that you can compare the probabilities of um, or distributions uh, of, that seems it's not necessarily simple mathematics, but it's just math that you're performing on numbers. But you're talking about physical objects where the analysis historically has been done visually by looking at them. And you can't put a bullet or a scratch pattern into a regression. Um, so what, what's the, the process before the process, just conceptually, how do you turn a bullet into numbers that we can mathematically analyze? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So what initially drew me to looking at firearms examination and pattern analysis is my research area is in data visualization. So I love looking at images and the work that firearms examiners are doing, this comparison of two things that are not completely the same, but 
very similar uh, that comes very naturally to me. And that always translates into what I'm also doing at work. So my background is in visualization. And we're also in a very fortunate situation because at Iowa State, we've got the high-resolution microscopy lab. So we've got two focal light microscopes with which we can take images of bullets or anything really. Um, but in this case, images of bullets or specifically uh, very small parts of the bullets at a high resolution. And by high resolution, I mean in the microns. So that's one millionth of a meter. Mm -hmm. um, you can feel with, with your finger when you touch a coin. For example, you can feel that profile that's about 100 microns. We are working at a resolution of maybe plus minus four or five microns. Mm -hmm. It's small. So in a bullet, we can capture the striation marks across a land. And the way that this looks like in a topographic sense is that we get a little piece of that bullet curvature. And on that image, you already see vertical striation marks. So you can see it's, it's like an ISBN. So you, you see a code of stripes of various thickness um, at various intervals. So when you're thinking about that, it's really just a one-dimensional piece of information across the bullet surface. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the technique that we're using. We're first getting rid of any of the extraneous structure. So bullet curvature, um, we're not interested in, so we take that out. And that is actually a mini regression there. And we take out all of the areas that we're not interested in, like um, the groove engraved areas on either side of the land. And um, we're only looking at the residuals from that. So we end up with a curve that has ups and downs. So it's, it's just a, a curvy line with peaks where we have a striation mark on the bullet and valleys when we're between striation marks. So we do that for all of the bullets that we can get our hands on. And based on that, we can then compare these, these functions of signatures from one bullet to the next bullet. And when we overlay those signatures, we can already usually see that they are very similar or they're not similar at all. Mm -hmm. So this is close to what firearms examiners do with their visual inspection. They see whether there's um, similarity or not. We see that. But the way that we then quantify it is we extract features. So just standard data science technique, machine learning technique. We extract quantitative features out of the set of 2,000 points that we've got for each signature, something like um, we compare two signatures and we get the cross-correlation value. So that's a very um, statistical term. What it means is we have our regular correlation, um, but instead of just taking the first value on the first signature and the first value on the second signature, we shift the second signature forth and back until we get a maximum in those correlation values. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of 
if you were doing this manually, visually, you'd need to rotate the bullets to to match them up. So yeah, exactly. by, by mm-hmm. maximizing the correlation, you're finding effectively the orientation yeah, of the data. That takes the role of the rotation, yes. Mm-hmm. And we can do that automatically to find the the right place. So what you're what the signature is measuring, it's, I guess, vertical height or depth of the cuts into the bullets, the striations that uh, mm-hmm. correspond to. This is something that puzzled me at first. The idea of lands and grooves, when you're looking at the bullets, it's actually reversed from what you would expect. Exactly. The, the grooves in the bullets you refer to as lands, because mm-hmm. it, it's the, the land in the barrel. And the land goes actually down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's... Uh, both counterintuitive, but also a really nice conceptual reminder that what you're really trying to do, you're you're not trying to compare bullets. You're trying to identify whether they were fired by the same gun. So exactly, that, yes. that's mm-hmm. what the real subject of study is. It's the barrel of the gun, not the bullet so much. Yeah, you're right. So the, the land is engraved by the barrel onto the bullet. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at the marks that are left by the land in the barrel rather than what might be called land on a bullet. Mm-hmm. I just love this work, both because completely foreign to me, and I just love <laughs> learning about uh, new fields and new applications, but it's also intensely nerdy and geeky. I mean that in the best of all possible ways. I love it, but really applied. I mean, th- this isn't weird, conceptual, you need to be in the field to understand this. This is CSI and X-Files, everyone sees this, and the criminal justice system, it it matters in a really immediate and tangible way. And I guess I'll just ask this way, when you got your PhD, did you have any idea that you would be doing this sort of work? Absolutely not, no. But I think that's partly why I went into statistics. I like to play in other people's playgrounds. And the opportunity with CSAFE came along and I was immediately on board. Since then, I've been collecting data um, by shooting on the firing range of the local sheriff's office from Story County. Mm -hmm. And never in my life would I have thought that we would be doing that. Mm -hmm. My mom did not even allow me to have a toy gun. I'm, my ba- I'm from Germany, as you might be able to tell from my accent. And it's a very liberal country. Nobody has guns besides the police and soldiers. What was the experience like learning and discovering how this field works? The community is pretty amazing. Um, there's a lot of people happily explaining how guns work, how firearms examination works. We've been to the AFTI meetings multiple times. That's the annual meeting of the firearms and tool marks examiners. And even when we tell them that there are certain problems with the scientific foundation of the field, most people are very open to the idea of having additional help, Mm -hmm. particularly if that help is also fast and doesn't take more of their time. Mm -hmm. Because most labs are have a very large backlog and whatever helps them to reduce the backlog somewhat is very welcome. The methods that you've developed, how are they implemented in the field or are they being used in practice um, nowadays? Or does it take a long time to do the scanning of the bullets and get them into the database? Or is this something that forensics experts actually 
already are using or might be able to use in the near future? More firearm lab, FTE labs, are employing the 3D scanning technology. And there's been, just in the last eight years, there's been really a revolution of new development and technology really moving into the labs. So it's getting easier and easier to get these 3D scans. Initially, it took us about an hour to just collect data on a single bullet. That is not helpful. Mm -hmm. For cartridge cases, by now it's a process of maybe 30 cartridge cases in a couple of minutes. Mm -hmm. So the technology is there. What we're working on actively right now is to try to get the technology into the labs because as statisticians, we're not particularly good about user interfaces mm -hmm. or the management of evidence that has to be kept in place. There's very strict regulations. All of that is very foreign from an academic point of view mm -hmm. because we are very loosey-goosey, maybe too loosey-goosey sometimes with our algorithms or the way that we handle files. So obviously that step has to be done, but we are in the process of getting some of these algorithms implemented in software that has already done this step of regulation. So it's more that we're trying to produce knowledge that can then be easily adapted by vendors who work with the labs. So it's a little bit indirect, but it will get there eventually. I assume that there are standard forensics software packages that forensics experts use so that this could be a feature incorporated into one of those. So you, you don't need a full commercialization team and product development team if there, there's already someone that you can work with. Yeah. So the biggest software vendor is a whole network, the Nibin network, um, that is working with a database of scanned bullets, cartridge cases. And Nibin has, in the last couple of years, also switched the scanning from just 2D pictures to 3D images that allow profiling a height profile. So I, I'd like to pivot now and just ask more generally about your field and statistical graphics. Can you just give me the pitch for why students or others should be interested in this field? It sounds like it's got to be a really interesting field. Um, graphics can save lives. <laughs> um, and I'm not even kidding there. Um, there's a lot of... So usually we use graphics to summarize data that is already there. So people actually have the knowledge already, except that that knowledge doesn't transfer into our brains by just looking at the data tables. Mm -hmm. So if you remember the Challenger explosion, it was known that the O-rings didn't withstand low temperatures particularly well, yet the rocket ship was launched sometime in January or February. And it exploded, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. All on board lost their lives. And obviously, in hindsight, um, people can say, yes, these O-rings fail at low temperatures. It would have been good ahead of time to see this relationship between temperature and, and O-ring failures. It's, that's a very drastic example. Um, usually, graphics are a lot less drastic. But 
graphical summaries preserve a lot more information than numeric summaries do. For example, a data set by Anderson, very old, the Anderson Quartet of two variables each that have the exact same statistics, so minimum, maximum, mean. They all share the same characteristics. They even share the same correlation. But when you plot them, you get four very different looking scatter plots in X and Y. Hmm. Similar thing, the Datasaurus is a new data set with 12 of these data sets. And one of them is actually showing a dinosaur, which is very different to all of the other ones. Mm -hmm. So you just looking at the numbers, you'd never know this. But once you graphically represent them, you learn, you're able to recognize additional things contained in the data that's there. Mm -hmm. yeah. So sometimes that's being called phishing, but uh, I would like to go with a much kinder avenue, the exploratory data analysis. So the founder of exploratory data analysis was really John Wilder Tukey, extremely prolific scholar in statistics who served on multiple presidents' advisory boards. So also a very influential statistician. So graphics can be used to find relationships and new knowledge in a data set. So in order to negate this argument of phishing, what some of my colleagues and I have been collaborating on is something called visual inference. So we have a way of giving a scatter plot or any kind of visual finding, really, a quantity that's similar to a p-value, so a significance value, without having to run a traditional hypothesis test. So that opens up the realm of the possibilities to beyond what might be possible to solve with traditional tests, where we usually have to make very strong assumptions usually about normality and homogeneity in the data. With graphics, we have a lot less of these kind of restrictions. So the way that these visual inference tests work is that we come up with a lineup. So we have, a, we have our data plot. Our data plot is the suspect. Somehow my work always comes <laughs> yes. back to suspects. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a suspect. That's the data set. And then we have a working theory, and you can call it a null hypothesis. So implicitly, when we're looking at graphics, we oftentimes have a null hypothesis as something like, there's nothing interesting here. There's no relationship between X and Y. And then we find something and we say, oh, this is really interesting. At that point, people might say, well, you're only doing this test because you saw already that this was interesting in the data, mm -hmm, right. which is a fair criticism. Um, so instead of saying at that point, oh, this is interesting, what we say ahead of time is, if there is really no relationship in the data, then our plot should look like this. So we break the relationship between X and Y by just scrambling one of the two variables, mm -hmm. for example. And that produces plots that don't have a relationship between X and Y by default. And then we take our data plot and we place that in a lineup. Generally, we're using 20 plots. And then we're showing that to somebody and we say, which of these plots do you think is the most interesting? So if the 
if the person picks the data plot, that would count as evidence that maybe there is something interesting in this data set, in, in this relationship between X and Y that's beyond our null hypothesis of independence. Mm -hmm. And when you think about how many, uh, so one in 20, that boils down to 0.05. So we're back at a 5% p-value that somebody picks the correct data set just by accident, randomly chooses it. Right. That, that's a really cool method. I, I like uh, the the use of, hopefully the IRB isn't listening uh, to this, I like the use of human subjects as uh, kind of the computational vector there. It's a really a fun sort of methodology. That was um, also very interesting to just go through IRB approval for mm -hmm. the human subject studies, um, because I think very few statisticians actually collect data. Mm -hmm. um, usually, we're not the ones who collect the data actively. Usually, we get to work with somebody else who has collected the data. Mm, right. But that was also very fun. And all of the things that we're doing is actually being approved by our IOD. I, I have no doubt uh, that the, the university of Compton, they would have found out and made sure. Um, mm -hmm. If folks are uh, interested in any of your work, we, we will have links papers. to uh, some yes. of Heike's papers in the podcast notes. Thank you for having come out to join us last week to share some of your work with the faculty here and thank you for taking the time chatting with me uh, just now i just continue to be so excited about this work because it's so tangible and counterintuitive and just unexpected and really cool thank you yeah it's a lot of fun Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on the latest happenings within the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at unl underscore ngtc. NGTC.